Wow. <laughs> we got a nut loose on the keyboard back there. Sorry, we're working on that. The original Rocky, that's our <laughs> title for today. Take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 16. That's awesome. I love coming to church here. <laughs> Matthew 16. Uh, now, I, I kind of need to give you a point of explanation. For eight months, roughly, we've been, or seven months, we've been looking and working our way through Luke's gospel. Last week, we came to a passage of scripture that is a critical turning point, not just in, in Luke's gospel, but also in Matthew's and in Mark's. And um, it, it, it provides us with the opportunity for me to step out of the series on Luke where we've been talking about storytellers and our opportunities and responsibilities as Christians individually, but also as a gathered body of believers called Crestwood Baptist Church as we step into the marketplace of Southeast Texas sharing life. That's been our focus in Luke as we've worked our way through it. And what is the life that we share? It's wrapped up in Jesus Christ. We don't offer him. We don't offer anything when you get right down to it. And that kind of gives me the opportunity now to make this transition because I want to go to Matthew's gospel where we pick up the exact same scenario, some of the exact same words, but there's more in Matthew than what Luke recorded for us. And I want us to spend some time here because we need to get just how significant this event was. I suspect that history is full of instances where something big was begun with lasting implications and yet the people didn't realize it was such an important moment. I know that that happens. It's happened in my life more than once, but I'll take you to one of those. It was in, of all places, I found myself uh, (laughs) in a college Sunday school class party. The reason I say it that way is because, first of all, I didn't have anything to do with church or church people in those days. So the last place you would expect to find me is in a college Sunday school class. Uh, And it wasn't just that. It was at a party. The last group of people I ever wanted to hang around with in those days was with church people. So somehow I ended up at this college Sunday school class party And it was the start of something big in my life. I didn't realize it at the time. I looked across the room, and on the other side of the room was this dark-haired beauty of a woman. That was when Teresa and I first kind of, well, she started feeling pity for me in those days. And I was struck. In those days, her hair was dark. As soon as she started dating me, it started turning gray. (laughs) In that Sunday school class moment, that party, that moment I never dreamed that now 30 plus years later we would have had a full life together. You see, history's like that. Things, Little things happen that trigger stuff, and we don't know at the moment that it's a big, huge deal, but in looking backwards, we can trace those events to see big stuff there. That's true in the life of the church also. In 1505, five, one, excuse me, 1505, 1505, There was this guy, a Catholic, who was named Martin, who was appointed to the Augustinian order of monks. 
1505, nobody knew Martin. Most, many people today look backwards. We don't even know what that means, the Augustinian order of month. But by 1508, this guy named Martin had become a doctor of the Roman Catholic Church. That's a huge statement. And as years began to stretch and this guy Martin began to do his scholarly research, 1515, he became one of the senior guys in that order of monks. Most of us don't get that. The 1505 means nothing to us, but many of us, if we don't know the dates, we certainly feel the fallout of that guy named Martin Luther who in 1517 walked up to the Wittenberg castle door and nailed 95 theses of what he believed was wrong with the Roman Catholic Church. A huge moment that at the time most people would have looked at and said, it's just a renegade monk. And that triggered what we know to be the Reformation. And God did a work through that guy, stretching through the years. History is full of scenarios where people live through moments that at the moment seem inconsequential, but in the overall scheme of things become major turning points for history. Such is the situation in Matthew chapter 16. Beginning in verse 13, we find these words. It's the exact same passage that we looked at last week in Luke. Uh, Just go ahead and take that ribbon, that marker in your Bible and put it here because we're going to be in this same passage for two more weeks after today. Because I believe that we are at a time in the life of our church, we better get this. If we're to be storytellers, if we're to be the church that God called us to be, this passage and this incident in the life of Jesus and those disciples has to ring true for us on multiple levels. So last week and three more, we're going to look at what Jesus says in verse 13. He says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said... Some say John the Baptist, or others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Even reading through this, we are so familiar with this passage, those of us who have been in church a long period of time. We're so familiar with it that it just rolls off of the tongue and we see it and we just kind of go, oh yeah, I remember that and we read right through it. This week... I took some time and I pulled away from everything as best I could and I asked God to help me to get this passage in its full force in a fresh way. So I just kind of prayed through it. I I know that that doesn't make sense because most of the time we think prayer is much, much talking and we're filling space with our words, but best prayer I ever do is the one where I don't say anything and I just listen. And so I pulled off into a isolated part of our church facilities. And I just kind of sat with the Lord and asked him to take this passage and breathe it into life. So because I want to do a little bit of what I call sanctified imagination here, okay? Uh, We have the word and it says what it says, but 
Let me just try to get you into the situation. As I was praying through this, I was thinking about putting myself in the situation. It's not, not all that difficult because I've stood at the place, at least in the vicinity where this happened. When Teresa and I went to Israel several years ago, um, we, we, we were staying at a place on the Sea of Galilee called Tiberias and we got in our tour bus and we were going up to the region of Caesarea Philippi where this takes place. If you have a Bible in the back, I mean, if you have a Bible, that's great. If you have a Bible that has maps in the back, go to the, one of those maps in the time of Jesus and you'll see that Caesarea Philippi is way up in the northern part. It's up in that area close to the Syrian border today. It's up in that area where the Syrians historically have shot rockets across into Israel. That's the place where we were, where this occurs. It is a pagan hot spot, even in Jesus' day. We'll talk about that as we get into the next couple of weeks here. But I want you to think, Jesus has done all of his ministry at this point, has been centralized around the Sea of Galilee. Capernaum and that area there on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee and a little bit over uh, into the eastern, mostly in the west. And, and that's where they've been centered. But now Jesus moves those disciples way up into the top part of the land of Israel in those days. That's a significant thing. It took us a while to get there by bus. And for them walking, it would have probably taken them a couple of days, I'm guessing, or at least one full day of walking, probably more than that. Uh, And because some of that land is marsh-type land. Until recent century uh, or so, it was uninhabitable and not really able to be used much for farming because of the runoff from the high country, the snows up in Mount Hermon area and all of that kind of stuff. And so he just makes their way up into this isolated part of the land of Israel, away from the crowds, away from the press, away from all of the popularity that Jesus had been spurring. They get up into this place, and I envision them as they sit around and it's a beautiful garden there. Sometime I'll show you some of the pictures of some of those trees, full bloom, just beautiful place. And as they're sitting there in the discussions, probably hanging out in the shade, Jesus looks at his disciples and says, hey, what are, you, what are you hearing from people? Who do people say that I am? And I envisioned those disciples. If I was there, I think probably the way it would be for me is I would, you know, you just go with what you've heard. And and so their mind starts going back to some of the conversations on the edges of the crowd when Jesus is healing people. And those disciples are listening to what real common people are having to say. And so one of the disciples jumps in, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. And of course, you know, they're all going, yeah, but we know that can't be true. We know John. And somebody else says, well, you know, some people are saying you're Elijah. A guy who has very much the Jewish Messiah forerunner kind of stuff and the age of eschatology, all that kind of stuff. And they just probably from time to time, one of them throws out another name. And so they get through this process. And I kind of like to think of how Jesus might have been responding in that. We read it, we read through it quickly. But my suspicion is that this was just some guys hanging out talking. And then Jesus cuts to the chase and he asks a question that kind of sets them back a little bit. But who do you say that I am? My suspicion is that if I was in the crowd, I think my head would have had an answer for that. But I think my mouth would have been slow to throw it out. 
Because to say you're the Christ, you're the Messiah, as Simon Peter ultimately does say, is a sonic blast in their head. This is the Messiah? You know they've been thinking that, but Jesus now pins them down. Who do you say that I am? And so I kind of think maybe they might have just kind of turned their gaze away from him and, you know, start looking around. You, you're waiting for the big mouth person in the group to give the answer. You know, every class has one of those, right? And so finally Simon Peter's had all the silence he can take. He is not a silence kind of guy. And I suspect that he looks at his buddies and probably some of them are going. And he says, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. We've got a lot of teachers in our church, educators, and parents. You know how it is when one of your students stumbles on the right answer? Or maybe they get the right answer, but it's not really an easy answer to get to. Are you, I was always surprised when one of my sons gave me the right answer. You have that with your kids? And so when, when he gives me the right answer, I go... That's my boy right there. I kind of think that maybe Jesus was like that. Maybe the, the, the corner of his lip turned up a little bit as he, as he hears Simon Peter nail the answer, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. I can't help but believe that Jesus kind of smiled and looked at him and he said, congratulations. That's what the word blessed means, by the way. Congratulations, Simon, son of Jonah. You got it. A critical moment in all of history. We so easily read over it and make it just kind of flow like it's some kind of Sunday school lesson. And we look backwards 2,000 years plus and we find that what Jesus utters in those next few sentences is a turning point in history. Jesus is establishing the church here. It's a big deal. And in that, he provides for us the fundamental truth about the nature of this thing called church. So I'm going to spend three weeks unpacking this passage about why it is so important that we get what Jesus says here. Because the reality of it all is that we can be the best storytellers in all of history and still miss Jesus if we're not careful. So let's look at this passage together. Now, I have to tell you as we go into it, this is not an easy passage of Scripture. One scholar says that it is the most controversial of all texts in the New Testament. Never stopped me before, you know, big mouth frog. I'll jump right on in with it. But here's one of the reasons they say that. You realize the passage that we're going to be looking at here is one that is used to say that Simon Peter was the first pope of the church. And to take it a step further to say that because of that and the stuff that's said here about Simon Peter, apparently, that there is such a thing as papal succession. Well, you're not a good Roman Catholic, most of you. You probably don't know all that stuff, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time dealing with it, but we better have an answer for people who say, what is this thing called the church? We want to be good handlers of Scripture. 
So we're going to spend a little time dealing with this critical point of reference in the life of the church. So let me give you a real quick review from last week. I don't want to spend any time here other than to say this. We looked last week at Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, this passage where Simon Peter simply answered the question, who do you say that I am? His answer was, you are the Christ of God. Let me wrap up that 40-minute sermon in about two minutes for you. One of the things that Jesus does, he always does it, he always does this, is he pushes the question to you. It is one thing, and it's a good thing that we can know what other people are saying and what other people believe, but in the final analysis, at the end of the day, Jesus smacks you in the face and says, but who do you say that I am? So who do you say Jesus is? That's a critical question. One of the things that I, you know, I run into a lot in church work uh, is realities in our church functioning that people kind of want to bring to me and say, okay, so how do we fix that? I had that happen a number of years ago. A different church, a lady came to me, and she wanted to know why all of these kids that raise up through the church, she was a children's worker. Other church, not this one. And as she was concerned because all these kids that she poured her life into, they got into junior high and then high school. And by the time they got into late high school, it was see you later church, I'm done. And they check out of church altogether. She was going, what's the deal with that? And so I started to give her an answer. And then I realized she didn't want my answer. She had her own answer. So the question was just a smokescreen for me to give her the opportunity to say what she had to say. She handed me a book. Let me just tell you something, okay? Just because somebody had enough money to publish a book does not mean they know what they're talking about. I read this book. I read about two chapters. I took it back to her and I said, this is garbage. Well, actually what I said was, I think probably it's wise that you don't use this to teach our kids. You know why kids walk away from the church? You know why you as a parent pour all this stuff into your kids and they turn around, they walk away from church? It's because they never personalize their faith. Mama's faith is not good enough for you. It's not. So Jesus continues to push that question. Who do you say that I am? Which gets us to the nature of the church. Which gets us to this passage. How do we view the church in our day? Now, let me give you a couple of examples. For one thing, we, this would be a good audience participation time, all right? So I'll ask these questions, and you can kind of shoot back what you think is a good answer. No wrong answers. If it's what you think, it's okay. Um, how do we view the, the church? Well, when I say, here's one example. I said to Teresa this morning as I left the church, I think I said it this way, I'm going to church. Okay, so how do we use the word church in that context? It's a building. It's a location, if you will, because we have multiple buildings on our site. So church for us can be a building. Here's another way we say it. Uh, We have church on Sunday. What does that mean? A church service, all right, which means during this time we know that we're going to have church or at least we're going to schedule having church. All right, here's a third one. Preachers are bad about this. I mean, preachers are real bad about this. That's my church. Okay? Now, for preachers, 
Well, you can figure out what preachers mean. Lots of luck with that one. Uh, How would you mean it? If you said to somebody, Crestwood Baptist Church, that's my church. What do you mean by that? That's where I attend. Okay? So there's multiple levels of discussions and areas that we talk about church. The question here is, how did Jesus mean it? In verse 18, that's the focal verse for us today. Jesus says this, and I tell you, you are Peter... And on this rock, I will build my church. What does he mean by that? Contrary to what some people might believe, Jesus did not make this word up. He's not original, the one to use it. Although he is the original use, this passage is, to refer to it for what we call church. Actually, he borrows the term from the Greek language and actually from Greek government because in the Greek city-states back in that time, uh, before the Greco-Roman Empire, uh, they would need, every once in a while, that city-state, that town, we would call it, would need a decision to be made, some kind of crisis, some kind of question, some kind of an issue. And so they would go to the marketplace and call out individual people from their jobs, from their homes, from wherever they were, they would go get them and call them out and say, we need to gather here and make a decision for our city. That group of people was called, in Greek language, ekklesia. Literally, it means called out ones. It was used in a political context. Ekklesia. That's the word that Jesus uses here. And so whatever else we want to say, it was kind of one of those things Jesus took an existing idea and he pumps it full of new meaning. One of the ways that he pumps it full of new meaning is he also goes back to a word from the Old Testament in the Hebrew language, kahal, which means a community, a covenant community especially, the people of God. And the key thing for us is when the Hebrew Bible, what we would call the Old Testament, was translated into the Greek language of the day, those Hebrew scholars used the term ekklesia when they referred to the kahal. Now, that's a lot. I know I'm not, there's no test on this or anything like that. I just want you to get what Jesus is doing. He's reaching into secular culture. He's reaching back into Judaism and their culture, and he's taking those two words, and he puts them together, and he pumps new meaning into it. These disciples... Hear Jesus say, and on this rock, I will build my church. So here's a good definition for us to use. The church is a community gathered around a central, unifying, or core belief. Hang on to that. That's important for us because the reality is our world in America in the 21st century is full of those kind of groups. We have at least one member of our church who's a member of the Rotary Club. Those guys, people, guys in the generic sense, have gathered together around some unified, unifying core belief or something that they're about. Okay, I don't know what it is because I'm not one of them. Lions Club, same way. There's something that pulls these groups together. And our world is full of these kind of groups. So if you're not careful, one of the things that happens for us is we start buying into this club mentality as it relates to church. One of the biggest problems and problem-causing problems that we have in the church is when people begin 
to figure out we're just a club. By definition, everybody doesn't fit in the club. If they do, it's just general population. These are problems for us, these kind of issues. If all we are as a church is a club, whatever else happens, we're not the church. So let's look to that unifying confession. In the time that I have left, let's see if I can pull this together. Have you ever wondered why there are so many options for church? My suspicion is, unless you lived immediately next door to this church, you had to drive by another church to get here. Do this someday. Count how many churches are along the way in the path that you use to go to work or to church. There are lots of options. You ever wonder why that is? And some people would say, well, people can't get along. That's why they get along. They fight in one church, they go start another one. Well, that may be true, but here's part of the deal for us. There's a, every church has its own personality. That probably leave me a long time to have to express that and, and explain it for you, but that's a reality. Every church has its own personality. And churches, one of the things that just ate me up in seminary, just ate me up, is seminary, they, they tried to teach us that as pastors and as churches, we needed to figure out what we were going to be, and then we went to reach those kind of people for our church. You know why that eats me up? It's because that leaves out lots of people who are not like us who are going to die and go to hell if we don't take the message to them. But... At the same time, I get the reality of that. There's an affinity-based model for building churches, and that is we're going to do things that we tie to these people. One of the upswing kind of movements in church in the Baptist history of the last 10 years or so has been what we call cowboy churches. And they build roping arenas. And Teresa and I went to the rodeo the other night. Oh, wow, it was awesome. I loved it. That Keith Urban, he, he plays the best Christian guitar I've ever heard. But in the prayer time, before the rodeo started, they had an invocation. 75,000 people gathered together, and we're going to pray together. I was going, I love living in Texas. And they got a guy who's a rodeo cowboy to do the prayer. I bet you he goes to a cowboy church. And that's okay. In our church, we're looking to decide who we're going to be. Always, we're always, every day we make a decision who we're going to be as a church. And so we have a committee that's looking for a youth minister because we believe we ought to be a church that reaches teenagers. And the same with children. We believe we ought to be a church that reaches children and their families and so we're looking for that kind of a minister and we also emphasize stuff like music around here. What kind of church are we going to be? But you see, here's that subtle slip off of the face of the cliff that kills you in the end. If you so sell out to being that model of church that is affinity-based, it's towards this interest, it becomes very easy to lose Jesus in the process. I served a church as a youth minister many years ago. You could go weeks without hearing the name Jesus come up at church. Verse 18 gives us an answer. Jesus says, upon this rock, I'll build my church. 
The real question and interpretation is, okay, so what does he mean by this, this rock? So let me, I've been enlisted some help this morning. Simon Peter is visiting with us in the audience today. And so come on up, Simon Peter. This is Turner Hart, and he's going to help me out here, okay? Stand right there and work real hard, look good. That's what I want you to do, okay? All right. So here's the interpretation thing. Jesus says, look at your passage again. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. That means the son of Jonah. That's an interesting comment because Jesus is about to change his name. His name is Simon. Blessed are you. Congratulations, Simon, Jonah's son. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. The Greek word is Petros. All right? Petros, that's your new name, okay? Turner Petros. Petros means rock. The original Rocky, right there, all right? Jesus says, but your name is Rocky, Petros. Many people in church history have taken this passage because Jesus says, and on this rock... And they, so let me give the gestures down. They believe that Jesus says, and your name is Petros. And so he looks to the other disciples and says, and on this rock, I will build my church. That is why many generations of Christians have said that Simon Peter was the first pope. And then the rest of this passage explains for them why Simon Peter could make all of these decisions and then the papal succession and all of that kind of stuff that we find in the Roman Catholic Church. I'm not here to knock Roman Catholics, trying to help us understand this passage, all right? Petros, and on this rock, now Jesus changes the terminology though. Now it's an on this Petra, which is more of a foundation stone, okay? But those can be used either way. That doesn't really help us understand, but I want you to get this. Jesus is saying, your name changes, This is now rocky. The question for us is, did Jesus say now on rocky, all of this stuff is going to be built, my church? Or is it something else? Thank you. Good job. You can have a seat. Didn't he do a great job? He's a natural. So the question is, is that what Jesus intended on this rock, on this guy? I'm going to build my church. If that's the case, well, let let me say it this way. There are churches all over America today that are personality-driven. The man or the woman gives that church its identity. Whatever else you want to call that is wrong. Let me put it in a little more theological terminology. It's heresy. Nobody gets Jesus' spot except Jesus. Does that make sense? Now, I don't have time to develop the whole thing, but the question before us is, what does Jesus mean when he says, on this rock, I will build my church? Let me cut to the answer, I believe it, okay? The answer, that upon which Jesus is going to build his church, is on the confession that Simon Peter made. You are the Christ. Every bit of this book, Matthew's gospel, that is, is about Jesus being the Christ. 
Every bit of it up to this point has been Jesus establishing his authority. And Matthew pushes him to the surface. He is not just somebody else. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just an exorcist guy. He is the Christ. This is the turning point in Matthew's gospel. Simon Peter clutches the truth. It's a small beginning, tucked in a little valley in the hill country of northern Israel. But everything changes from this point out. You're the Christ. And on that rock, Jesus builds his church. Let me tell you why that's important. I'm going to skip down. What are the implications of this? Two basic ones. Here's the first one. As a church, we are unique among organizations. There is overlap between the... Now, I get in trouble for this because I'm not a member of either one. I don't know what I'm talking about. But I think that there's overlap between the Lions and the Rotary Club. If the church doesn't do the work of the church... It doesn't get done because of the nature of who we are. As good as those organizations are, they're not the church. They cannot do what we have been given to do. Let me give you a question or two to help. If we as a church were to be suddenly removed from this community, would it make a difference in this community? If, if Crestwood suddenly wasn't here, would anybody notice that? I'm, I'm going to come back to that in just a second, but let me bring that down to the bottom shelf, okay? If you, as a Christian person, were suddenly removed from this community, would the community suffer for the cause of Christ because of that? Would the kingdom of God suffer if you just suddenly weren't here? I have a feeling that Texas, I've lived all over the state of Texas, I think I'm pretty safe in this statement. Texas is full of churches that make no impact on their community. None. And if they were gone, nobody would know. Let me give you a good example of that. I served a church in deep south Texas. When I was there as pastor in this incident I'm about to tell you about happened, we had been there for 90 years. Not me, but the church had been there for 90 years. 90 years. And we were having a discussion about how inconsequential we were in the neighborhood, or we at least thought that. And so my youth minister, oh, always, you know, he came up, he said, i got an experiment I want to run. Now, if a youth minister says that to you, you better start asking questions. I said, what do you have in mind? He said, I want to get a video camera. I want to get a table. I want to go to Walmart. Super Walmart was about two miles from the church in town we live. He said, I want to go set up outside the front door of Walmart. I want to videotape people as they come into Walmart. I want to ask them about the impact of this church on this community as far as they were concerned. And I thought, go for it. He did that. He stayed there all day long interviewed people as they would come in. If they were willing to stop and talk to him, he interviewed them all day long. Church been there 90 years. Not a single person even knew that church was in that town. How would it be if we ran that experiment in Lumberton at the Walmart here? How would that be if we set up shop outside this little diner that's 100 yards away? 
How would it be in your circle if somebody was asked, how much do they impact you for God's sake? You see the reality. This is the second truth I want you to get from this. It goes with that one. A touch point for organizational life and development for us is the fact that Jesus and our confession of him as Lord has to drive everything for us. Let me say that again. If you're a committee leader, a Sunday school teacher, a leader in this church in any way, you're going to work vacation Bible school, whatever you do, we can get so busy doing stuff. If we leave Jesus out of it, we're wasting time. But boy, it's easy to leave stuff out of it because after all, we're, we're, we're working to get these people. I had a teacher ask me one time, what are you going to do Sunday? I said, I'm going to teach. What are you going to teach? I said, I'm going to teach the Bible. He said, what are you going to teach the Bible? It doesn't need your teaching. People need your teaching. I thought, you're a smart aleck professor. But the lesson registered with me 30 years later. I still remember it. Because we can get so locked up on missing people that we miss the truth also. But we can also be so focused on people that we don't ever take them to Jesus and he's the only one that matters in life. The nature of the church, the one truth I want us to get today, Jesus starts something new here. The gathered community, that Old Testament picture, the called out ones who come together and make decisions and move forward for the people at large, that is the church. And if he's not in the center of it, we're wasting our time. But as we said last week, if he is in the center of it, he has some expectations. And our answer has to be, yes, sir, whatever you say. Implications are going to go further. We'll talk about that. I'm out of time. Let's pray. And as we pray, here's the one thing I want you to get. It's easy to hear a sermon like this and think about everybody involved, but the reality is you are part of this church. And so take the application on a personal level. How is it with you? Is Jesus the center of your whole life? My favorite old Celtic songs At least I heard it in a Celtic sense one time, and so I tie it to them. Jesus, be the center. Be my source. Be my light. Be everything. Father, help us to get this right. In Jesus' name, amen.